Thank you, sir. Let me invite you to take your Bibles once again and go with me to 1 John chapter 5 this morning. 1 John 5. Over the last couple of days, thought came to mind for whatever reason that uh, we're coming up on 10 years where Moen and I have lived in the home where, that we currently are at. And uh, whether it's walks through the neighborhood or runs through the neighborhood or bike rides through the neighborhood or just driving like we did to get to church this morning, uh, we make trip after trip after trip after trip after trip on the same streets, past the same houses, time and time and time again. And depending on which mode of transportation we're in, probably, and maybe the time we have to accomplish that trip, uh, depends on what we see along the way. Um, same is true in your neighborhood, same is true really in any place we regularly go through in life, that as you go, you know, we were walking as a family last night, I was walking again this morning, there are observations to be made. So while I was walking this morning, I noticed, for example, one of my neighbors has Christmas lights up. And I thought either they're way ahead of the game, they're way behind the game, they're lazy, or they're just smarter than the rest of us, I don't know. Uh, but I made that observation this morning, having never noticed that particular home still has their Christmas lights up. Uh, on the other hand, there's not just observations to be made, there's beauty to enjoy. Uh, while we were walking last night, I commented to Melinda, like, just look at all the crepe myrtles uh, in our neighborhood. There's a bunch of them along the way, and uh, there's one as you come around the corner where this man has two just beautiful, white, tall crepe myrtles. And she's like, they look better than anything you'd see at Longwood. I'm like, she's right. It's just amazing what he does. And uh, so along the way, you're making these observations, you're seeing these beautiful things. I got questions. I'm like, so I wonder what he does to keep them looking like that. Like, I don't know what kind of work goes into that, but I've seen plenty that don't look good. Uh, and this guy obviously has it figured out and knows what needs to be done. And uh, so there's questions that come to mind. There's also not just observations to be made or beauty to enjoy or questions to ask. There are relationships that we enjoy, hopefully the same is true in your neighborhood as well, that you enjoy also. We had a good time just stopping and talking to one of the neighbor ladies last night. She has a dog that our kids love, and she's very gracious while our kids play with her dog uh, along the way, and just enjoying talking, getting to know each other a little bit better. I want those thoughts to be in your mind as we come back to the text of 1 John chapter 5, because as we work our way through a book like 1 John, uh, John, inspired by the Spirit of God, will come to a subject and we'll, we'll hit that subject and then we'll continue on our journey, on our walk, and uh, we'll hit this subject over here. And then it's like we get to the next chapter. Now let's come back and revisit this theme over here again. And sometimes along the way in our journey, it's not even like we're walking through the book. It's like we're crawling through the book, um, looking at every blade of grass and flower along the way. And uh, in doing that, sometimes we miss our need to make observations, ask questions, and enjoy both the beauty of what God has put there and the relationships that are expressed. And so this morning, we're in a text where we revisit again some familiar themes. And I hope in their familiarity that you don't miss what the Spirit of God has put in these verses for us but instead start to ask questions of yourself of, Lord, how do I need this right now? Or, 
better yet even, what, what am I missing in this text? What, what has God put here that is just beautiful, that I should rejoice in, that I should praise him for? And what do I need to learn along the way? If you remember with me, as we've been working our way through 1 John chapter 5, we saw early on in the chapter that God's children are overcomers. That which is born of God overcomes the world. And really the encouragement there is that while there's opposition, while there's hardship, difficult circumstances, while others abandon you along the way, like what we saw in 1 John chapter 2, understand this, that faith in God through Jesus Christ does bring about eventual victory. That to be God's child means you can overcome. You will one day see victory accomplished. As we looked at that idea that God's children are overcomers, we reminded ourselves foundationally that's established in ongoing faith. It's then practically evidenced through sacrificial love. You can't claim to be a believer and be God's child and be an overcomer if you don't love those around you. Third, it's exercised through loving obedience, saying, no, first I love God and I keep his commandments, and his commandments aren't a heavy burden that I just can't bear so that I can find the encouragement of this victory. Now, last week, as we came back to the text again, having covered those other thoughts a week uh, before, we just remind ourselves, not only are God's children these overcomers, but you can be assured that this is true because God has given witnesses to his son, Jesus Christ. Through Christ's baptism, through Christ's work on the cross, through the ministry of the Spirit. And if God witnesses to something, it is far greater than any witness of man. In fact, what we saw last Sunday night is that experience then of the witness that God has given in verses 10 through 12. And we're reminded that God has actually given us his indwelling spirit. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, God puts this witness in us so that we also understand that when we believed and we are God's child and he's put this witness in us, he's promised us eternal life. Well, we absolutely don't deserve, he said, God has given to you eternal life through his son. This morning we come back to the text that we read earlier in verse 13, and once more John is seeking to give assurance to his readers, assurance really to us as believers today through the inspired work of the Holy Spirit. As we look at the text this morning, we're going to start in verse 13, looking at the purposeful assurance that John gives, followed by the relational confidence in how we live. What does it mean? So if, if I have this assurance that John has written about, what does it mean relationally in my confidence before God in verses 14 to 17? That follows. We'll start in verse 13 again, looking at this purposeful assurance. We could say it this way He wants them to have certainty regarding eternal life. We can, may come back to this thought later on with a quote, but I would just remind you that there, is, there are so many denominations, so many religions, so many people in this world who don't want you to have certainty about eternal life, let alone certainty about anything in life. How can you know what's right and wrong? How can you know what happens after you die? How can you know that God will really let you into heaven? And John makes it very clear here that his purpose in writing is, I want you to have assurance. I want you to have certainty 
regarding eternal life. John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, read those words again with me. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. John's done this a number of times through his letters, but I appreciate the directness with which he writes under inspiration to go, okay, I'm writing to you because, and then he just tells us. It's wonderful. I mean, think back all the way to the beginning of the opening of his letter in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. These things have I written unto you that your joy might be full. That's a wonderful purpose for John to share what God has for us in writing. I want you to experience full joy. And part of that is found even in the truth that we come to near the end of the letter today to go, there is life eternal through Jesus Christ. You can be assured of that. And so John is purposefully targeting assurance in his writing. I'm writing to you for this purpose. He 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 gave us another one. These things have I written unto you that ye sin not. I, I want you not just to have joy, but I want you to fight against sin. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to have to confess it. And when you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But I'm writing to you to encourage you, don't give in to sin. Keep fighting the battle. And today, he comes back to say, I want you to have that belief, that faith, that leads to eternal life. This is a big theme for John, which is why I used the analogy before. Again, I've been through my neighborhood hundreds, perhaps even over a thousand times, if you count all the driving and whatnot, I'm, I'm sure, along the way. There's houses that you go by and you go by, up, oh, yep, yep, yep. And then if you stop and look, you go, actually, look at that. John, in his writing, time and time again goes, hey, you need to believe, and here's how you have life. I even think of his purpose statement in the Gospel of John in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. I, I like his big view of God that gets expressed in these two little verses of purpose. He says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. It's like, by the way, there's some amazing stuff about Jesus Christ in the Bible, particularly the Gospel of John. But John tells us up front, there's a lot more. Okay? But why did John include the ones that he did as the Spirit prompted? He says in verse 31, but these are written that you might believe on the name, or that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John's saying, I want you to believe on Jesus. I want you to keep believing on Jesus. I want you to have the life that he gives. Now we come to 1 John 5, 13. He says that you believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So we consider this purposeful assurance. Again, we hit these themes of faith and eternal life once more. First, you see the prerequisite necessity of faith. The prerequisite necessity of faith. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You see, if we don't believe on Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Son of God, we don't ever get to the eternal life with God's side of the equation. Foundational, essential to eternal life is that we've believed on Jesus as the Christ, 
That's where we get the idea of Savior, that we believe on Jesus as the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Deliverer, and that we believe on him as the Son of God. This is the ninth time in John's brief five-chapter letter that he's hit this theme. Believe, 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 believe. And he does it in two different ways along the way. There are times where John says you need to believe points in time like what we are to do at the moment of conversion. Salvation happens in a moment. Salvation happens when I say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again. I'm asking him to save me. I'm saved. I believed in that moment. But that kind of belief doesn't just stay there. It keeps on believing. And so John will say, I want you to believe, but I want you to keep on believing. And so again, I would just pose the question before we move on to the next statement. How is your faith? Has there been that time where you said, you know what, I am a sinner who disobeys God. I deserve judgment from God. But I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose again. And you just simply say, God, please save me because you believed on Jesus. If you haven't done that, that is your need today. There is no getting to eternal life with God apart from this prerequisite necessity of faith. I believe there'd be many here. It's why we've gathered as a church on a Sunday who say, well, yes, I, of, of course, I, I believed. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believed on Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Well, as life beats you up, as circumstances get hard, as perhaps sin or apathy get in the way, are you continuing to go, but I'm going to keep believing. There is victory to be won. God's children are overcomers. Jesus is the deliverer, and I'm going to keep on believing. Having looked at the prerequisite necessity of faith, secondly, let's look at the promised certainty of eternal life. And within his idea of purposeful assurance, he says, prerequisite necessity of faith, promised certainty of eternal life, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. This certainty is intended to be an encouragement that bolsters and strengthens faith. To realize what's going on here and now is not all there is. As we look at this phrase, familiar words to many, I would note for us that the possession of this life is emphasized. The possession of this life is already being emphasized. The term to know is a perfect tense verb. The idea is somewhere back here, you came to know that you have eternal life and you continue to know that you have eternal life. It's like, I know that's true back there, but I still believe that's true back he over here. To go, nothing changes that promise from God. He's told me if I believed on Jesus Christ, I have eternal life. I'm secure. My future is settled. It is that John 10 idea where Jesus himself teaches and says, no one plucks you out of the Father's hand. You have a certainty about your future. But I would also note for us that not only is the possession of this life emphasized, the duration of this life is emphasized. The duration of this life is emphasized. If you were to pick up maybe an interlinear Bible and just look at the word order here, you would notice that the word order in the original languages is different than our English order. If we were to interpret it very, translate it very literally, we would say that you might know that you have, that life you have eternal. Again, even saying it's 
man, that's awkward. But he's like, hey, life you have, eternal. Right? So this doesn't end. Again, having grown up in a Christian home, having been in church all my life, sometimes I take these things for granted. So I want to pause and just remind us again. He's talking about that which is endless. Right? I mean, probably overused it too many times at this point, but I've told you it just kind of captivates me to look at the telescope and the images that are coming back from the James Webb telescope and be like, well, how far away do they say that is? And look at that. And it's like, that doesn't even begin to compare to how long eternity is. It just keeps going and going and going and going. And there's a side of that that we think we've discussed before in our study in 1 John where it's like, but that's almost a side of that that's scary. Until we realize that what John is driving at is if you believed on Jesus as the Christ, you are with God, your creator and savior for all of that time, forever. Which, by the way, is a wonderful reason to have assurance. In this brief little time that we're here, God, I want to make sure that I believed what your word says so that I have assurance for all that that follows. Appreciate the words of the way John Stott communicates this, so I'll read you a little bit of a longer quote than typical. He says, it is common today to decry any claim to assurance of salvation, to dismiss it as presumptuous, and to affirm that no certainty is possible on this side of death. But certainty and humility do not exclude one another. It's a lot packed into that little statement. Certainty and humility do not exclude each other. You can have both. If God's revealed purpose is not only that we should hear, believe, and live, but also that we should know Presumptuous lies in doubting his word, not in trusting it. He's saying actually the greater offense, the presumption, is to doubt that what God has actually said isn't really true. He told us, remember, we're supposed to believe the gospel. We're supposed to live the gospel. We're supposed to obey the gospel. We could have, we're supposed to communicate the gospel. But he also wants us to understand. He wants us to know that eternal life is what awaits. It is the future for the believer. Having firmly established the assurance of their relationship with God, John continues then by pointing to an activity that flows out of that relationship. To go, okay, if you've believed, you have eternal life. So what is, how does that even impact how I live now? It's not like I can say, well, I've settled eternity, I've got salvation, so I'm good. What does that mean for life right now? And there are so many applications we could go to that are biblical from other texts. But where John goes next is, you talk to God. You talk to God. These aren't just like unrelated thoughts that are just kind of randomly thrown in at the end of the letter. He's going, you have, if you've believed, you have life eternal. And so you can actually right now have confidence in talking to him. We've spent our time so far looking at purposeful assurance. Secondly, let's look at relational confidence. We'll have to move quickly as we go. Relational confidence. In verses 14 and 15, first we see the security of submissive prayer. 
the security of submissive prayer, to go, if I'm assured that I have eternal life, that God is my Savior through Jesus Christ, then I can have confidence in talking to him in prayer. And he writes these familiar words. This is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us, and if we know that he hears whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. Again, John over and over has hit this theme of confidence. He's told us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, you can have confidence when Jesus returns someday. That's something we should desire. When Jesus returns, we don't want to be questioning if we got that right or wrong. You can have confidence when he returns, 1 John 2, 28. He's also told us that we can have confidence at the time of judgment in 1 John 4, 17. That one's been more recent. Like, boldness in the day of judgment. Those are words that we don't often put together. I think it's actually okay when judgment comes because I've believed on Jesus alone. That's amazing stuff. And I think we kind of look at those future things and go, well, yeah, I want to have confidence there. But one of the themes that John has hit now two different times in his writing that we way too often take for granted is you can have confidence in prayer. You can have confidence in talking to God. 1 John 3, verse 21, he said, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now in 1 John 5, 14, he comes back to this same idea. So maybe before we keep looking at it, I would just ask you, how is prayer going? Are you talking to God? He's not even saying like, well, you know, you should pray. He's saying actually you should have boldness and confidence when you do pray. And yet for some of us, there's a need to back up and go, do you talk to him? Because unfortunately in the busyness of life, in the self-confidence of the American mindset, we can say, oh yeah, mentally prayer, I give a cent, that's a good thing, we should all pray. And yet it's kind of like exercise. Some people just ignore it and say, I don't need to do that. Some people talk about it and never do guilty. And then others say, well, yeah, there's some that do. But you know, we need to be talking to God with confidence of a relationship that he has established through his son, Jesus Christ. If you remember with me, we looked at this word confidence previously. It's a fascinating word. It speaks of a privileged position to speak boldly or openly. Literally, the idea of the word has the idea of standing face to face. And just having an open conversation, a bold conversation. I used the example when we looked at this word in 1 John 4 of what it's like when sometimes people go to college for the first time and they meet somebody and they're, like, they're kind of timid and shy and they just, they're just afraid, what if I don't say the right thing? Am I really allowed to talk to this person? Can I not talk? And there's all this awkwardness that takes place. You know, it's a wonderful thing, whether it's in your family, your church family, where you're like, I don't even... Stop to think, are they going to take this right? Are they going to take this wrong? I just talk because I'm not worried about it. That's the picture of the idea of like, you can talk to God. He's told you if you believed on Jesus Christ, you have eternal life so that there is relational security and confidence to go, God, here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's where I need you to work. And just talk to him. Again, that's why we love and enjoy the Psalms so much. Because you find these uninhibited expressions of praise where it's like, this is great. And then there's other times where it's like, no, this is not. It's horrible. And you listen, you're like, 
Is that really in the Bible? Can you say that? He goes, you're someone who just has confidence in talking to God. The text here has told us, John's saying, I'm, I'm writing to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you would know that eternity is settled. You have life through Jesus and that right now you can have confidence in talking to God. It's the same idea, familiar words of Hebrews 4.16, that we come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy. That already says, I don't deserve this. I deserve far worse. So God, I'm coming to you because I need mercy and I need grace to help in time of need. That's why I'm here, God, because I need you. Within the text today in 1 John 5, he adds these important details that if we ask anything according to his will. You see, true faith, true belief on God says, God, I'm submitted to your will. Because, God, I'm believing on you for who you say you are, who you are. And, God, however your will spells that out is up to you. I mean, even this morning, you're following church's Bible reading plan. Uh, we just started in the book of Job. Whew. To believe. But Job's saying, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And by the end, God is reminding Job, Job, now, where were you when I did this, and how did I make this, and how did I accomplish this? Because what God is driving at is, Job, you just need to trust me. And so, yes, I believed on him for eternal life, and as I pray to him confidently, honestly, openly, God, here's where I'm at. God, I'm praying submitted to your will. And it, that may mean that, you know, I start over here, and I'm like, God, I'm praying that you would do X. Well, God, I've been praying that way, and I that's not what's going on. God, I'm open to whatever, but Lord, if you want to do this, that's okay. And, and we're just saying, God, I'm trying to find what your will is. God, I just want to see you exalted. I want to see you pleased. I like the way, again, one writer raised the question. His name is David Jackman. He rightly questioned, if God were to answer on any other basis, which of us would ever pray again? If God's like, okay, this isn't really in my will, but I'm going to let this one slide. That would be a dangerous place to live. Say, Lord, I'm going to pray according to your will because we do not have the wisdom that God has. And admittedly, again, I think many of us know what it's like to go, God, I struggle with this. Lord, I've prayed for years. God, I struggle. Really, the text I would direct us to is, for encouragement, very simply, simplistically, is to even watch Jesus' example in Mark 14, 36 as he prays. And I don't claim to understand this completely, to go, fully God, Jesus, fully man. But there in Mark 14, 36, Jesus prays that familiar prayer, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's very clear what Jesus is asking God for. Then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So as we pray, we say, Father, I'm going to come before you openly, confidently, honestly, boldly, but I want to remain submitted to whatever you have. The text tells us he hears us. And we kind of might be quick to run past that, 
Um, this idea of he hears us means he is listening intensely and favorably. I think Pastor Gingery mentioned it recently on a Wednesday night. Several of us know it's kind of true to life that you can be in a conversation perhaps with a spouse or a family member. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they stop and say, so what did I just say? I don't know. That's awkward. Tends to be a male problem. Right? I don't know. That is not what this verse is saying. Okay? Even in church. You can get up here in a little bit and start on your way out, and you've got something on your mind, and someone stops talking to you, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay. And then you leave, like, what did they say? That's the weakness and frailty and fallibility of humanity, probably the selfishness of humanity. We need to work on listening. God doesn't have to work on listening. When we pray, he hears. He wants to know. I think it's actually harder for us in the discipline of communicating. In fact, I know. I shouldn't say I think. I know it's harder for us in the discipline of communicating than it is for him to listen carefully to what we're praying. And yet we're told when we pray, God hears. So we're encouraged to persist in prayer, even when it feels like things aren't working. God, I'm praying according to your will. I believe that you hear. Then we're also told in verse 15, he acts, and we know that if he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. You know, God's going to answer, because we prayed according to his will, and Lord, I just want to accept that from your hand, and I'm seeking to have my heart conformed to whatever your will has, but God answers. John is seeking to provide assurance to these believers once more to go, there is security in submissive prayer. God loves his children. He answers prayer. He sovereignly works for his glory and our good. By the way, this idea that um, we ask is in the present tense. In fact, all the verbs or most of the verbs that speak of our responsibility here in this text are present tense verbs. Like We are praying. We are asking. This is something that is just regularly occurring. And so before we leave this thought and have to quickly rush through the last two, which is an important thought, I'm going to ask you one more time, how is your praying? Verse 13, eternal life through faith, assured. Wow, great. I'm glad I don't have to work for it. So do you boldly, openly, honestly, regularly, in submission to God's will say, God, i got to talk to you again i got to pray. Within the assured relationship of verse 13, conversation regularly, openly, and submissively occurs in verses 14 and 15. Having looked at this relational competence and seen the security of submissive prayer, secondly, we want to see the activity of intercessory prayer. The activity of intercessory prayer. You'll notice that the theme of verses 14 and 15 shifts slightly in verses 16 and 17. They're all talking about praying, but in verses 14 and 15, it's focused on us praying to God about us, whereas in verses 16 and 17, it's us praying to God for others, particularly others when sin is involved. And even in that, there should be some instruction to us in terms of how we pray because it's very easy and not bad. But it's very easy for us today to go, well, I need to pray for this health and physical need. I need to pray for this material need. I'm going to pray for this event that's going on. 
and to miss the reality that Scripture does tell us that when someone is battling sin, there is need to pray. We've talked about it many times before, but you can even just look through these prayers that Paul offers, that the Spirit inspires, that are recorded in the New Testament. Whether you're in Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 3 or Colossians 1 or 1 Thessalonians 3, you can start working your way through these prayers and see Paul is praying for spiritual needs. And so John here, inspired by the Spirit of God, challenges us with this activity of intercessory prayer, where it's not just selfish of, I'm going to pray for me and what I see and submit to the Father's will for me, but I need to pray for others. In essence, he's saying Christians should pray for brothers and sisters who are in sin. This is not an uncommon theme in the New Testament. It just might be an uncommon practice for us someday, sometimes. So, for example, in James chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, shall hide a multitude of sins. Where does that come from? It comes from verses 16 and 17, more, at least part of one verse, a little more familiar. In verse 16, he said, Confess your faults to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So I'm struggling. I need people to pray for spiritual victory. Remember, if we stay in James as one example, sin always seeks to destroy. James 1, what comes from God is not sin. Don't get that confused. Don't err, verses 16, 17. But before that, in verses 13 to 15, we're told about lust, and when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth. Sin seeks to destroy with death as its ultimate goal. And believers have a ministry and an opportunity to come boldly before the throne of grace to pray for one another. That is the expression of genuine Christianity. I like that verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, that reminds us, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall, you which are spiritual, restore such an one. In the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Look, this could happen to me. This isn't me reaching down like, okay, I'll help you out. I'm doing great. Well, you know what? We're all made of the same sinful stuff. And apart from God's grace, I could be there. I'm going to reach down and help. I'm going to pray for the person who is in sin as well. It is an expression of love for those believers, which has been a recurrent theme for John throughout his writing here. Here in 1 John 5, verse 16, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life. Earlier he's told us, 1 John 5, 11, that God is the source of life, but here life is, uh, intervenes for that one who is in sin so that it doesn't lead to death or destruction. So he says, God answers the prayer for those who are in sin, giving life, giving hope as we pray for those spiritual needs. But John does give further instruction. He notes then, there is a sin unto death. So, hey, some sin doesn't lead ultimately to this death and this destruction, and you need to be praying. But on the other hand, there is a sin unto death. I don't say that you should pray for that. And as we look at that phrase, a lot of times we wrestle and go, well, what is he talking about here? I would note for us first, he doesn't go as far as commanding that prayer not be offered but he isn't commanding that prayer be made. This kind of absolves a conscience to go, did he say don't pray for that? He's like, no, I'm saying you don't have to. Okay? 
more so than provide, it does again absolve conscience, but he doesn't exactly identify what sin is discussed. And that's where sometimes minds get hung up and go, well, what exactly, which sin is it that leads to death? Could it be a specific sin? Yes, it could. I don't believe that's the case, but it could be a specific sin. On the other hand, it could be someone who is persisting in sin, going their own way, whereby God in his judgment says, here's the end result, death you will receive. You can read through the New Testament as an example. Uh, Note this first. Uh, If you were, again, look up in in an interlinear, there is no article before the word sin here. It's translated that way in basically every modern translation. But you could, because the article is missing, it's just as valid to say there is sin unto death. Is that true? Theologically, that's true. Textually, that's also a very accurate way to read this. There's sin unto death. Can you validate that from the New Testament? Sure. 1 Corinthians 5, when someone's in unrepentant sin, the church is told, if that person's not going to confess their sin, they're not going to turn from it, that you deliver someone unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. If we need an even more tangible, more specific example of that, and we go to 1 Corinthians 11, as people abuse the table of the Lord at communion, what happens as a result? Some are sick and some have even died. They sleep. Okay? Or we could go to Acts chapter 5. See Ananias and Sapphira. In their misrepresentation of what they have done, both die there as well. There are multiple sins we can look through in the New Testament and go, death occurred there, death occurred there, death occurred there as a result of sin. Was it one categorical sin? In those cases, the answer is clearly no. But here we're being told, when sin is leading to death, we do not have to pray. Some would say, you know, John's talked about the Antichrist, those who are against Christ, whether you're in 1 John chapter 2 or 1 John chapter 4. He said, here are people who left you. They went out from you. Perhaps that's the case. But here's what I think our takeaway needs to be from the text to go, when the Spirit prompts to pray for someone in sin, I need to pray for that person. I don't have to get real hung up like, is that a sin unto death? God knows that. I don't have to figure that out. But when the Spirit is prompting me and going, I need to pray for those that are in sin, I need to take that very seriously. Go, God, I'm going to pray for this person. I'm going to ask you to deliver. I'm going to ask you to give life once more. And so that we don't start categorizing sins too differently, but are reminded that all that fails to meet God's standard is sin. Notice verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin. Because the way some of us are wired... It's like, okay, so there's sin unto death and there's not a sin unto death. i got to figure this out. It's like, let's zoom back out for just a minute. All unrighteousness is sin. It all condemns us to eternal judgment apart from the work of Christ. Unrighteousness, simply put again, is that which fails to meet God's standard. So if God says, here's what love looks like, and I miss it, it's sin. If God says, here's what obedience is, and I miss it, it's sin. Here's what honor is, here's what glory is, here's what worship is, and I miss it, it's sin. All unrighteousness, all that doesn't meet God's standard is sin. This adds incredible gravity of the need to fight against sin personally, but also then to pray for other believers faithfully. And he reminds us one more, there is a sin, not unto death. Like There is an opportunity to see others rescued from sin and its consequences by praying for them. 
round out this section in John's letter. Again, he's written with purposeful assurance to go, I want you to know that you have eternal life. Like, you're taken care of. Life is certain and assured for you. But based on that purposeful assurance, I want you to have this relational confidence to talk to God, to just pray openly, submissively to his will. But as you do that, don't get too hung up just on you. I want you to pray for others. Those who are in sin, knowing that sin does lead to destruction, to death, I want you to pray that life, that hope might intervene as they turn back to Christ. Let's close in prayer. Fathers, we walk through this text. Once again, it's humbling to think about the life that you've given through your son, shedding his blood for our sins and overcoming sin in the grave. We don't stand worthy of that kind of mercy. Instead, we do deserve your judgment. We deserve your wrath. But Lord, we are thankful that through faith, we can have this promise of eternal life. Lord, on that basis, we realize from the text of your word and even from the love that it shows, we can talk to you honestly, openly. Lord, you do hear, you do answer. And Lord, again, in our humanity, at times we really struggle what it means to pray according to your will. Lord, we ask for even your help and your spirit in our weakness, conforming our requests and our will to submit to your desires. Lord, in those things, we really just ask that you would be glorified in how you answer as we submit to your will in prayer. But God, I thank you for the truth that's represented in some difficult, at times hard to interpret words in verses 16 and 17 that you also challenge us to pray for one another when sin is present, to seek to see you intervene that life might be given and restored as sin and death are denied. Lord, I pray that we might seek to faithfully pray for one another, even along these lines. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.